Hello and welcome to this episode of Her Moment in History podcast. I'm Grace. I'm Michelle. And the theme for this episode is France, I think, generally speaking. Yes. We have a small yes. number of listeners in France, so there yeah. you go. <laughs> Gradually going through that list of where we've got listeners from and, and doing episodes based on them. So, mm-hmm. and you're going first this week? Yes. So I just have to start with a disclaimer that, so this person was biologically born a woman, but like at the time they did not have the language to sort of express anything different. But like you can interpret that she would probably be non-binary. But then I have recently wrote an, an essay about this in which like all the literature referred to her as female. So I just copied that, which I didn't really enjoy doing. So if I, I was going to try and use they, them. But if I accidentally say she, I don't, I'm not trying to misgender because we don't know. So I'm trying my best at making myself easier to edit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My person is Claude. It's spelled Cahoon, but I think it's pronounced Khan, or in a okay. French way that I can't really grasp because I'm French. Mm-hmm. So they were born the 25th of October, 1894, as Lucy Renee Mathilde Schwab in Nantes, France, to a intellectual Jewish family. So her father was, I couldn't find this anywhere, but I'm sure I read it somewhere that he was a publisher of like avant-garde and symbolist writings at the time and her uncle was the avant-garde writer Marcel Schwab okay and like in the circle they knew Colette and they knew Oscar Wilde among a lot of other famous names oh yeah so that's kind of what she grew up around and her mother was Marie Antoinette Corbebas who began suffering from mental illness when Cahoon was about four. And then she ended up in a psychiatric facility for the rest of her life. And um, her father would constantly question whether Cahoon would have this in her as well. Like he'd be constantly like, oh, are you going insane like your mother and stuff like that, which is probably quite damaging to grow up with. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, her mo- in her mother's absence, her grandmother, Matilda Cahoon, which is where she got her name when she renamed herself from. So she attended a private school in Surrey because the high school that she attended in Nantes in France, she experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. So they just sent her off to Surrey. And around age 13, she met Suzanne Malherb, who they would like start a romantic and artistic partnership at this time, which would last their, their cool. whole life. But then in 1917, the two would become step-siblings because her father got divorced from her mother and then married Susan's mother. Oh, Oh, okay. That's all very close-knit. Yeah, very. And then she studied at the Sorbonne in Paris and Mm -hmm. she started making uh, photographic self-portraits as early as 1912. And so this is the thing she's most famous for, these self-portraits which is what I wrote about in my essay Mm -hmm. because they're really interesting because they're like the most absent of self portraits that you've ever seen because she just kind of takes all these different personas in each one that like you can't really grasp any sense of who they are from it. So like there's one where they are in like a a bodybuilder exercising gear holding like weight but then on the shirt it would say don't kiss me I'm in training and she have like big love hearts on her cheeks and her hair's like all done up and it's like completely blending gender but this is in the 1920s so it's crazy yeah yeah and they're really interesting i highly recommend just looking at them they're 
so much fun and she plays with the androgyne a lot so she'll be completely bold and mm-hmm. there'll be no sort of gender markers at all that's completely devoid of gender in a lot of them so she officially changed the name to Claude Cahoon in 1919 and before this she went f- with Claude Corliss which was named after the Corlu which is a bird or she'd go okay. by Daniel Douglas after Lord Alfred Douglas Oscar Wilde's lover but then yeah. set- settled on Claude Cahoon and at the same time her partner Suzanne Malherb took the name Marcel Moore and they'd sort of stick with their names from then on and mm-hmm. so in the early 20s they both moved moved to Paris to live together and around 1922 they started holding artist salons at their home in which they met like a lot of artists from the time um particularly Andre Breton who was the head of the Surrealists which she would become a part of through him and um, right. Yes, because the Surrealists were very male-dominated and a lot of the literature is like she's the first proper female Surrealist because all the other females were bought, like, with the already existing males were in, like, a romantic relationship with them and then they became part of the movement via that. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas Cahoon kind of had actually worked their own way into it yeah. without ties from anybody else, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so on, cool. I think it's the Surrealist Manifesto, they wrote their name and for like 40 years, I think people thought that it that was just a soldier from, well not a soldier, that they were a male artist and who died in the war and that no one, that nothing of mm-hmm. their work survived and that no one really thought about at all. Oh. So they were very unknown for a long time. And I forgot to mention so one of the key things about the self-portraits is the, the like gaze that they just stare at the viewer completely like unashamed of what they are and what they're doing and sort of like it okay. makes you question I mean if you back then like why are you seeing anything wrong with it why is it odd well, there's nothing odd with it it's just you know like just very kind of like confrontational mm-hmm. like r- forcing the reflectiveness yeah yeah and they were also mm-hmm. not meant for like a wide showing on their own they were some of them were used because they they made a lot of collages and so bits of it were used in the collages but the portraits never appeared anywhere on their own so it's thought they were probably quite a private thing that you know a mass public mm-hmm. weren't meant to see but now we're viewing them that, that way so okay i know it's a weird skewed context then of it all yeah it's if really strange you you you're literally removing that yeah from so in 1925 Cahoon published heroines which is a book that is a series of monologues based on female fairy tale characters which is like okay mixed with witty comparisons to contemporary image of of women at the time which sounds fun oh okay I'm on board yeah so I want to read this and then her next book is called disavowals which came out in 1930, which was a book of essays and recorded dreams uh, illustrated with photo montages the self-portraits come from. It's also, some people mm-hmm. consider this an autobiography as well, but I'm not quite sure I haven't read it. So I don't I suppose like more, from what I can gather, like a memoir rather than an autobiography. Because an autobiography is like from beginning to, like it's the long piece, isn't it? Yeah. Of detailing each bit of your life, whereas a memoir is kind of like one snippet. Mm-hmm. So there's a quote in this book where she says masculine feminine it depends on the situation neuter is the only gender that always suits me so very nice who work with the surrealists they did some exhibitions that she was a part of i'm not quite sure what 
of hers was part of it. I think some of her photographs that weren't self-portraits and the montages that she did. So there's a famous exhibition in London, the London International Surrealist Exhibition in 1936. And so there's a famous part of that exhibition where Sheila Legg is standing in the middle of Trafalgar Square and her head is covered by this like flower arrangement and then she's got her arms outstretched and pigeons are sat on her arms and Kahuna said to have taken this photograph and that's the photograph that was like appeared in all the newspapers and in books at the time oh yeah, yeah. um considering i've never heard of them like huge no she's really not well known like the information online is really bad like i think this is the first time i've ever known more than a wikipedia article on something because of the like <laughs> <Well done. laughs> yeah i was like should i change it i don't know do i have an immoral obligation i don't know so and then in 1935 she took part in the founding of the left-wing anti-fascist alliance called Contra Attack with Andre Breton mm-hmm. and George Bataille. Mm-hmm. And um, Breton said that Cahoon was one of the most curious spirits of our time. And then in 1937, Cahoon and Moore, they both moved to Jersey because of the growing Nazism in Germany and they're both Jewish, so, you know, kind of at risk there. And I Jersey think... Jersey wasn't... Well, they, they were at risk in France. But yeah, Jersey got occupied. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't great for them. I think their parents had house that they stayed at on Jersey. And so when they went there, they reverted back to their original names and told everyone they were sisters. And then the German occupation came in 1940 and they were very against this, obviously, and they worked. So they created loads of anti-German flyers and they got a lot of like English to German translations from BBC news reports of like Nazi crimes and stuff. And like they pasted them all together to create like rhythmic poems and harsh criticisms. Oh, yeah, they so they dressed up as German <laughs> soldiers and attended like loads of German military events and they started placing like pamphlets in soldiers' pockets and on their chairs and in cigarette boxes <laughs> for the soldiers to find. Oh, I like it. <laughs> and then nice. they also used to crumple up the flyers and throw them into windows and cars. Mm-hmm. I like this. But we don't have any of like the flyers that they created because they were all sort of destroyed, which is very sad. Some they were kind of designed to be there. Yeah, like true. They weren't probably designed to outlast, you know, the fascism that existed at that time. How are they to know that we would now be facing another form of fascism, which would be very handy to have those flyers again? Yeah, true. And I'm sure I read somewhere that they they wrote a letter that was like forged from Hitler, and they were sort of distributing it like it was just comment that said that like the Germans are retreating. Please just give up your post and return back to Germany. And a bunch of soldiers just did it. <laughs> they got into oh, a lot shit. of trouble obviously but i couldn't find any where i found that so maybe that didn't happen but i hope it did i'm i'm gonna accept that yeah i'm gonna say that did happen mm-hmm. so i'm not it doesn't say how they were caught but they were caught and so in 1944 they were both arrested and sentenced to six months in prison and to death as well oh shit yeah so the six months were for listening to the radio because that was a crime apparently and then to death for the propaganda and then apparently Cahoon was like but which comes first at the trial (laughs) but thankfully they didn't uh, get killed from this they they were just in prison until the island was liberated in 1945 but Marcel Moore did try to kill themselves while they were in prison 
but they weren't successful. And then whilst they were in prison, they their property was taken off them and all the art that they created there was destroyed by the Nazis. It's oh, a lot of it damn lost. It. Yeah. Yeah. So Cahoon's health never really recovered from her treatment in jail. And so she ended up dying in 1954. And she's buried in St. Brelade's Church on Jersey. But her gravestone is her original name. It's not Claude Cahoon. Oh, okay. But if that's what they went to the island with that name. Yeah, that's... Like, that's got a lot of layers. Because you could be like, I suppose, the idea that they... You know, they, they fought and they died under the name under that name so is their grave that name or is there just i don't know an idea of ignorance surrounding the fact that that's their name that's been published i don't know there's a whole lot there mm. <laughs> in just that idea that their name is not the name they chose yeah maybe the person that they created separate from their birth name never truly died mm-hmm. well we still know about them today so marcel Moore, i think they moved back to paris for a bit but eventually moved mm back to Jersey and um, killed themselves in 1972. Oh, shit. Uh, some things say that it was because that they, they couldn't live without Cahoon, but mm-hmm. uh, you don't know. Um, but they're buried together at St. Brelade's Church. Oh, good. And Jersey. So it was not until the 80s that Cahoon's work was rediscovered. And I think it was by a French man that I couldn't find the name of, who he either owned some of the self-portraits or he found them in a archive. And then he started digging and he ended up writing a biography. And then this sparked like more global interest and there was some, but not many, exhibitions about her work. But then in 2007, David Bowie created a multimedia exhibition of Cahoon's work in the gardens of General Theological oh. Seminary in New York, which is fun. And yeah, yeah, he said that you could call her transgressive or you could call her a cross-dressing man ray with surrealist tendencies. I find this work really quite mad in the nicest way. Outside of France and now the, the UK, she has not had the kind of recognition that as a founding follower, friend and worker of the original surrealist movement, she surely deserves. I know. And then in 2018, a street in Paris, which is uh, close to the mess this up, Rue Notre Dame des Champs, where they both lived, yeah. they named it Ali Claude Cahoon Dash Marcel Moore. So this the street is named after them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and then also in 2018, Rupert Thompson wrote a novel called Never Anyone But You, which was based on the life of both of them. Mm-hmm. And then last year in 2020, there was a book by Jeffrey H. Jackson, which was all about their activism in World War II on Jersey called Bull- uh, Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis. I love it. I know. And that's... Oh, well, it's, it's like they're still somehow on the cusp of their fame. Mm. They're still not oh. well known, though. I wish more people knew they were... <laughs> they're so cool like honestly the portraits are amazing it sounds like so like it sounds like they're they're going to be people that in the in the like upcoming years they are going to be names that you know that are going to be known by you know art history students everywhere i hope so oh and just to add that because marcel moore is often like people think that their work was you know equally you know part of both of them even though it's just cahoon is in the photo but in some of them, you can see the right. shadow of someone, which everyone is just taking to be Marcel Moore. So, like, it was a collaborative effort and it might not have just been Cahoon's own work. Because mm-hmm. Moore's quite overlooked. 
to be honest. But equally yeah. as interesting. Oh, whoa. Yeah, that's Claude Cahoon or Khan. Very, very good. Thank you. God, they're so good. Mm-hmm. Shall we take a break? I think that's a good idea, yeah. Back in a sec. Welcome back. Hello. So, the person that I have done is called Julie de Albany, I think is how you pronounce mm. uh, her name. I probably, like, anglicised that a lot. Have mm-hmm. I ever mentioned her to you? Mm, I don't or remember. Or does the name ring a bell? It sounds a little bit familiar. Okay, does the title... Ah, it might... I say, because, like, I've probably mentioned this person outside of doing the podcast before. Mm-hmm. So, Julie Albany, also known as Mademoiselle du de la Mopin, might mm. be the name that you recognise. No. No? Okay. So, she was born somewhere between 1670 and 1673. Mm-hmm. We don't quite know because, you know, history and it's old. And she, her dad, she was born to Gaston d'Aubigny. Nothing really known about anybody else in her family. I don't think she had any siblings. From what I can gather, she wasn't raised by her mum. So mm-hmm. there's like nobody else other than her dad, kind of, in terms of family. And her dad was the secretary to Louis XIV's Master of the Horse. Interesting. So there's like, yeah, layers, but she's she like she had tides. Yeah, Louis the Fourteenth is the the Sun King. Okay, does he not feature that much in? There? Not really. Yes and no. Like he's he's there. He's the king, so mm-hmm. he's kind of like there, but he's not really. He's just yeah. I don't. There were so many kings called Louis, so I just I kind of blur them all together in my memory. Have you seen Versailles the series? I have not. No. because oh, that's about I watched him. the first episode. Yeah. Ah, I watched the first episode because when we went on holiday, when we could still go on holidays, yeah. uh, we went to Versailles and we went mm. to like look around the palace huge place honestly it's like throw up in your mouth with how like over the top and, and gold yeah. and, and whatnot it is but it is also very beautiful and uh, when then we got back home we were like maybe we should actually like watch <laughs> Versailles so we watched the first episode and we were like okay we, we get it now we've been there we've, mm-hmm. we've walked through those bits Fair but enough. we didn't really pay that much attention to the plot <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> Julia, but I think because um, Julia was like an only child, her dad just kind of raised her to be a mini version of himself. Mm-hmm. So he taught her, you know, dancing lessons, reading lessons, drawing lessons, in order to be like a well-rounded kind of member of noble society. Mm-hmm. And also like, because he was a, you know, really good at fencing, he taught it to her and she became really good at fencing. Mm-hmm. She, he also kind of just let her dress how she wished. So she dressed mm-hmm. as a boy for most of her like childhood and then adult life. And I think yes. it was just kind of like, because he kind of could do whatever he wanted, she could do whatever she wanted, and no one really paid attention. Mm-hmm. He also taught her his ways of gambling, of drinking, and of sleeping around. So, yeah, he was he was really painting like a mini version of himself when, uh, mm-hmm. when he raised her. But this kind of didn't really go down well for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So she was the mistress, from what I can gather, to her dad's boss, I I think. Mm-hmm. And so when then she was becoming a little bit rowdy, he then married her off to this guy called Sieur de Mopin, which is where she gets her, her like La Mopin from. And I think they set her up with him because he was like this really boring, pencil pushing <laughs> office clerk. So no. they were like, if you marry him, you'll calm down. But it didn't work. And yeah. very, very quickly, like after the marriage, she got bored and she ran off with her fencing master wow. who was banished from Paris because he'd accidentally killed 
older man. So they moved to Marseille. So whilst on the road, they would earn money by giving exhibitions in fencing and they'd sing. And this is kind of when she took the title of La Mopine as like a stage name. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact she'd, <laughs> she'd just run off from her husband, <laughs> she'd still taken his name nice. and was using it in order to fuel her career. Really discreet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think she was hiding. And she also, so she would, she continued wearing men's clothing whilst kind of traveling and, and mm-hmm. performing, but she in no way kind of hid her gender from people. At one point, this guy claimed that she wasn't a woman, that she was a man, um, just impersonating a woman, impersonating a man like that. She, because she just couldn't back down from a challenge, she like in front of everybody who was present, present just took off her shirt to just nice. reveal, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, yeah. So when then she got bored of her fencing master, who she'd mm-hmm. run off with, she just left him because, you know, she has, that's what she does. And she began a relationship with this tavern, tavern owner's daughter that was just like in the local village, which again then didn't go down with that girl's parents, who as soon as they kind of caught wind of the relationship, put this girl in a convent. (laughs) So what Lamopin did was, she followed her to the convent and became a nun herself. My god, this would be amazing for (laughs) Right? So then what they did was, not long after, an elderly nun in the convent died of unrelated circumstances. So what they did was, they stole the body of the nun, put it in the bed of the girlfriend, (laughs) and then set the place on fire and left. Oh my god. Did anyone die? That was not in the information. I assume... But it it wasn't really like spoken about. Mm-hmm. Now that's like a good recipe for a relationship, right? Like you set a yeah. convent, like you know, passion, burning, fire. We're all Bonding. here with the metaphor. Their relationship lasted three months. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> and then and then the girlfriend just went back to her parents. I'm back. I may have been some nuns, <laughs> but I'm back. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm back. So Julie, at this point, obviously, was now sentenced with kidnapping, body snatching, arson and then for failing to ret- to turn up in court and her punishment because she was charged as a man for some reason was death by fire. Okay, did that happen? Right, because France. So she then kind of obviously didn't want this so she began making her way back up to Paris to just go back home. So on the way, she kind of met a few different people. She was um, earning by singing again. And it's also worth noting that like she was an incredible singer, like operatic mm. level singer. And on the way, she she ended up meeting this actor who trained her like in like acting and performing before they then I think passed away so she kind of like it's very much one of those tales of like a journey where you meet fellow people along the road Mm -hmm. and like they impart wisdom upon you it's Mm -hmm. it's very like it's recipe for a film also on the way she was insulted by this nobleman who who then she challenged to a duel because again she can't back down from a fight she won this duel by driving her blade through his shoulder. Jesus. Yeah. And then because she was still, you know, she'd been raised well, she was still a gentlewoman. She went the next day to check on him and just see if he was okay. And it turns out that he was the son of a duke. Oh. <laughs> and so they had, <laughs> yeah. So they had this like brief, very passionate sexual relationship. And then when that kind of like, you know, teetered away, Wait, the one you uh, she they then had the this lifelong shoulder. platonic relationship. Yeah. Oh my goodness wow i don't i don't want to draw some kind of parallel between like penetration but i mean i'm going to (laughs) 
Oh, well. <laughs> so, <laughs> another friend made. She continues her journey. Mm-hmm. She's now in Rouen, which I know is, that's the one I'm going to pronounce because I mm-hmm. went there, so I think that, that's definitely how it's said. Fantastic Light Festival, if ever you're interested, please go there. Mm-hmm. There, she had another affair with another singer, and she continued her final leg of the journey with him in the hope that together they would then join the Paris Opera. Whoa. But, of course, she was still sentenced to death at this point. Like, that hadn't <laughs> kind of gone away. So, she got in touch with her dad's old boss who was of course the master of the horse for the Mm -hmm. king and said to him can you kind of persuade the king to not kill me did that work and the king said yes amazing (laughs) so because she wanted to pursue a life on the stage that he would grant her a pardon wow that's all it takes i know there we go you can commit any crime as long as you're destined for the stage apparently so if i get sentenced to death i can just ask the queen certain people i want to be a performer can you let me off Uh, yeah so she did get to go on stage it's also worth mentioning at this point she's only around like mid-20s wow she's done all of this like before her 20s i know i feel unaccomplished (laughs) um she made a lot of friends at the opera she quickly became very very famous on stage because she was fantastic on the stage she would perform in the evenings she would fuck in the night and she'd then recover in the morning and Mm. honestly what a woman right she was also performing under the name mademoiselle de Mopin because all I think all operatic singers had to, and performers had to have Mademoiselle at the beginning of yeah. their like title and she was still taking her husband's surname as her stage name so Mademoiselle de Mopin which is then how she's kind of famously remembered and but obviously at the time she was still also a handful mm-hmm. on the stage that that, that didn't go away mm-hmm. she would challenge people to duels on the regular and on one occasion she just beat up this guy because he was harassing other women on the stage which also fantastic but like she wasn't doing herself any favours <laughs> she also fell in love with a singer while she was there who turned out to be the mistress of the Grand Dauphine wow which I think if proven right is the person who's next in line for the throne yeah yeah or the brother of the king yeah maybe but that doesn't mean they're next in line anyway one of them I think so because I think uh, this is going to be really bad so you know the like TV show Rain the, like, yeah. the very like incorrect kind of correct version of Mary Queen of Scots because she marries the Dauphine and he's the son, which is why he's the next in line. Oh, because in Versailles the Dauphine is the king's brother but then he suddenly appears to have a child like the king does. Like, they never really mention the child. Like, at one point he's like, bring my child to me. He's ready to learn to be a king now. <laughs> it's like, never really they met just him decide before. that. They just like remember they they have offspring. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, yeah. That was that thing I meant to do. I meant yeah. to be a father. <laughs> I was at the bottom of my to-do list. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, um then in sixteen ninety-five, when so Julie was at this like grand ball that mm-hmm. was either thrown by Louis the Fourteenth or by his brother, it's not quite sure who. Mm. And she goes dressed as a man, and people just assume that she is a man. So she spends most of her night flirting with the with women at this ball. And like everyone's like fine with it, obviously men flirt with women fine so except some of these women have partners ah. <laughs> and they don't take very kindly when in front of everybody Julie kisses this woman in front of everybody no. <laughs> and three suitors <laughs> challenge her to a duel amazing <laughs> yeah now accounts on the duel differ mm-hmm. but she definitely wins and the king is definitely entertained always <laughs> are important are two things that definitely happen yeah some say that 
she ended up killing all three men. Some say that she just wounded them, but mm-hmm. the matter is, she won. And because of, like, the anti-dueling laws mm-hmm. at this time, which, like, I didn't realise were a thing, she has to be sentenced to death yeah. for this. But the king is so entertained, <laughs> he doesn't want her to die. Oh, wow. So he's like, I I would grant you a pardon, but my people will have my head for that. Mm. So she has to kind of just be banished for a little bit until everything kind of cools down. That's a yeah. better solution. It's, it's like a nice compromise, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she, it, she then moves to Brussels, where she then begins an affair with Electra of Bavaria. But this, again, is a very, very short kind of relationship because Julie's performing on the stage and she like stabs herself with a knife. <laughs> because like dramatic and Alexa didn't really approve of this and was like could you like not be so serious but Julie was all for the drama honestly if I'd have known her at the time I don't think I could have quite got on board with this like level mm. of energy but I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it mm-hmm. so then she moved back to Paris in 1699 when things had kind of cooled down a bit and she returned to stage for about six years she began a relationship with Madame de Le Marquis du Florence, who when they then passed away, Julie was like devastated about the death of, which I think mm. was quite shocking to a lot of people because she hadn't mm. really been like affected by these relationships. And that kind of then happened around the same time that she then retired from the stage in 1705. So, you know, I think a lot of emotional turmoil. So it's not really known what ha- what, what she kind of got up to after 1705. We know that she died in 1707, mm. so two years after after. But in those two years, there's not a lot. But there were articles, there were so many articles printed about her death Ooh. that kind of all had differing stories on what she'd been up to. Mm-hmm. So some said that she'd been living as the Bride of Satan. Nice. I think we can safely say that that one may be a bit uh, colourful language. Just a bit. Some say, yeah, some <laughs> say she <laughs> turned to religion and renounced her sins and lived in a convent for the last two years of her life. Or combine the two. Some say she raised raises the dead nun and de- beca- genuinely yes. ends up worshiping, sh- worshiping Satan. I love it. Yeah, she turns she turns a convent into a cult. Yeah. Um, and then other articles say that after everything, she actually just went home to her husband, the office clerk, <laughs> and just lived peacefully with him until she died. Like, honey, I'm back. Which <laughs> can you imagine? He'd be like, "You've been out for quite a while." She'd be like, "I've been out for like twenty years." <laughs> but I had a whale of a time and I'm back with the groceries. Anyway, anything you need? <laughs> so yeah, I quite like the idea that she did just kind of go home mm. and just kind of live out those last two years of her life. You mm. know, she'd done the bingo. She'd really like, yeah. honestly, yeah. There's a few portrayal, portrayals of her in the media, mm. kind of unsurprisingly. Her life was so like fantastical that that had to be. So the most notable one is Gautier wrote Mademoiselle de Maupin, which is a story that was written exclusively mm-hmm. about her in 1835 mm-hmm. but also more recently in 2004 there was a mini series made about her mm-hmm. and in 2014 there was a book called Goddess about her mm-hmm. so honestly like go check her out because she was absolutely batshit and, and I, I love her for it <laughs> um, fantastic but as well it's like such a good recipe for such a good slapstick yeah. comedy brilliant it be very fun to watch yeah <laughs> <laughs> lots of bright lights lots of fire lots of passion honestly brilliant so that was who who was my French person.
person for this episode. Amazing. French people are just, (laughs) they're really great, aren't they? (laughs) I mean, they are, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I feel like we've had very different ends of the spectrum. You had someone who was very kind of like, you know, her art spoke for them. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mine was like, she just, there was nothing going to stop her. But, yeah. Do you have any recommendations? I do. I recently, so at the point of recording, we're in the very early January, and I like to set Mm -hmm. myself a book list, a book target every year to try and read at least 52 books in a year and I usually surpass it but you know let's not get too hasty I've already read three this year we're very mm. early in January but most notably I am just wasting time here most notably I have read The Vanishing Heart by Britt mm. Bennett if you've heard of it which was fantastic like so good I, f- I finished reading it a few days ago and every so often I get excited about it again mm. and I forget that I finished it and I don't get to continue <laughs> oh. reading it and I'm disappointed that I don't get to continue reading it like mm. it was amazing it's about these two twin sisters who kind of they just separate mm. and they go off and do different things and one of them they're both very light skinned black women mm-hmm. one of them kind of becomes because she's white passing kind of just becomes a white woman almost and mm. lives her life in a white neighbourhood marries a white man and, and has a, a daughter and kind of keeps up this lie mm-hmm. about her identity and then her sister despite the fact that they're identical mm-hmm. does the complete opposite and marries a very well has a relationship with a very you know dark skinned man her daughter is you know very dark uh, so it's it's really mm. it's fantastic and there's so much in it and like that's just the surface mm-hmm. of what the book is actually so much about identity families homes who we mm-hmm. are it's brilliant honestly Whoa. please go read it everybody should read it that yeah. sounds really good I will read it what is your recommendation for the episode so mine is a YouTuber actually called Ooh. Carolina Zabrowska so it's okay Carolina with a K and she basically talks about like historical fashion or like from like sometimes she's she makes like an old piece like a Edwardian golf suit or something and then sometimes she'll be like mm-hmm. she'll just analyze like the history of hats and why we stop wearing hats and just like loads of random things that you don't really think you need to know but once you know it's like oh my god it's so interesting <laughs> and she does a lot of like I love that historical drama costume analysis of like how accurate it is for the nice. time which mm-hmm. is really fun and usually they're not very accurate <laughs> yeah that's who I recommend yeah. Ooh, I, mm. I love despite the fact I'm not very good at fashion mm. if, if anybody's ever seen me dress so they'll, they'll, they'll realise that but I love the historical fashion the reasons why mm-hmm. we wear what we do and, and how clothes have become what they are now so yeah. I definitely will check her out brilliant and that's the episode that was yeah it's been a fun one mm-hmm. I enjoyed it thank you for listening yes and we shall speak to you next time bye bye